Hi everyone. In case you missed it, this is the second part of a two-part episode. So if you didn't listen to the last one, I highly recommend going back and checking out or you might be a little confused. Enjoy the show. So I'm going to say that earnestness, which is truth, the moral or theme they don't really exist in board games very much and if they are they're like colonized places that's great the emotion which is again these these are all muddy they blur together the relatability of your game the relatability of like maybe representation of yourself on characters this is the one that i mean if you get it in there great if you can make a really earnest feeling game which people have fog of love oh yeah so fog of love for example has that emotion has that truth and that authenticity and that relatability and the moral like that's the rare exception of a game and that's kind of more rpg than tabletop game yes it is i would say purely an rpg but it is run through a tabletop game system it's basically a dmless rpg and it's my favorite rpg by the way oh nice so let's look at spirit as a whole so the three in spirit were energy earnestness and voice and these are harder to do in board games I think that spirit, and this is actually not just true of board games, but of all creative areas, is the thing that's hardest for amateurs to get right. Yeah. And I think that's what's in published board games. And obviously the publisher adds a lot of that and you can't do much as a designer. But as we say in the show a lot, the more that you can present the publisher or if you're self-publishing yourself with as a final product, the more likely you are to get your game made. Yeah, I think the difference between a really strong published game and a amateurs game that's never going to get signed is spirit and i think that's true of screenplays i think that's true of of comics i think it's true of everything because you know making something that's fun to play is actually not that hard like you know you hit a certain gate and you can just do that from then on but making something that sticks with you is incredibly difficult and that's why they're the pros who do it this has been an example that's been in my mind since all of fun problems i was waiting for a chance to use it the classic, I want to talk about Monopoly. <laughs> so Monopoly what, sticks with you. <laughs> it does. Think of why Monopoly sticks with people. Think of why people find Monopoly fun. It's a term that Gilhove, I think, brought into the tabletop industry from Jane McGonagall. And that's called Fiero. And it's basically emotional highs and lows. Like Oh, interesting. It, the, the range of spikes. Yes. If you think of your emotions as like a flat line. Whenever you see the spikes, the big spikes are Fiero. And so the idea here That's is... a great term. Right? Yeah. Um, so the idea here is you want there to be some amount of that. And when John and Jeff and I were all talking about over-polishing games, that's exactly what we're talking about. It's talking about removing Fiero from the game because I don't want people to feel bad. And inadvertently, by removing those emotional spikes, you remove the things that stick with people in the, the big exciting moments. The feel-bads... Yeah, they feel bad, but like those are still emotional impacts on the players, right? I know we're going long, but I want to just pick three games and go through Hook, Craft, and Spirit with them. Sure. Pick a a game that you think has been a huge hit. Gloomhaven. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll go Codenames. Okay. And then lastly, we'll go with Root, because we just both played that, and that has been a huge hit. (laughs) So, Gloomhaven the whole way through. So, what was the hook of Gloomhaven? Premise, platform, property, identity. If you want to target that, or if not, if you you don't think there's any of those, what was the hook? premise it's the card manipulation i think that central mechanic is definitely the pure hook i haven't looked at the first kickstarter i guarantee you there's like a gif of people playing the hand thing <laughs> and people going oh my gosh that looks neat when i first heard about gloomhaven that was the thing where i was like okay that's what's piquing my interest yeah. 
Okay, so for me, the premise was this, like, you play a campaign and your characters die and you get new characters. Right. Like, the legacy element, but more so. Like, it felt like me- it felt like legacy plus. Right. That and, was really interesting to me. And it's interesting that you hooked on to the thematic sort of hook, and I hooked on to the mechanical hook. And that exactly should tell you why you need multiple hooks in your game. Yeah. Because... I wouldn't have been there without the mechanical hook, and he wouldn't have been there without the thematic oh, hook. Oh, for, for me, it's the mechanical aspect of that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. It, it's both. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so the platform of, of Gloomhaven is interesting because that was on Kickstarter twice. And the first one did well, but the second <laughs> one did well. Right. And so the platform is Kickstarter, but also the platform of the first one. Like, mm-hmm. the first one was, was a step to the platform of the second one almost. You actually see that a ton. If you look at all the biggest Kickstarters... They're almost all second printing. Right. Seventh Continent, Kingdom Death Monster. Yeah. You know, tons and tons and tons of these ones. I can think of an exception, but it brought in an outside audience. That's Exploding Kittens. That's it. I knew you were going to say Yeah. So for that one, I think that knowing the platform is really important. I think it's a really good fit for Kickstarter because Kickstarter is good for big expensive things because you can shave down your profit margin by cutting out the middlemen of the shippers and the warehousing and the friendly local game store. And you have a higher profit margin, so you can shave that down a bit, give the consumers a good deal. And if they see they're getting tons of stuff for a good deal, that's the primary Kickstarter. It's yeah. not all of them. That's the huge yeah. way to go with and, that. And, and Gloomhaven had to do that to be affordable. Yes. Gloomhaven, I think Isaac was saying if he went through stores, it would have had to be like $350 or something. Well, it's funny because stores now have it, but it was the best price on Kickstarter. Yeah. Like I remember I was talking with a distributor in my store that I was working in, when I was looking at the second campaign of Gloomhaven going live, and I told them the price point, and they said, how is he charging it? That's what <laughs> we pay for it. Yeah, uh, That was the month that I clicked back, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't have held it if it hadn't already been a huge hit. Like, you couldn't, exactly. you couldn't go from scratch with that, that. Yeah, That's exactly what I was going to say, is that that paved the road for it to get there. And because now Gloomhaven was successful, and you could even find it in Best Buy, like, it broke through because it was, it was so popular... That paves the way for other products to come through, but now we're just getting to yeah, yeah, you know, off topic. Uh, property I want to talk about because this actually ties into something I meant to mention earlier. Property also includes genre. That's going to sound a little weird, but like if you like romance novels, in the same way as if if you like Stephen King books, you're going to buy the new Stephen King book. If you like romance novels, you're more likely to buy a romance novel. So it's like a little sub thing of, of property in my mind. So Gloomhaven didn't originally have an original property and Isaac was not a well-known designer at that point, but it captured the property of dungeon crawlers and legacy. And so like it didn't have an, an original property and it didn't have a unique property. So it used a bunch of existing properties. Like Gloomhaven would not have been a hit if it had been themed around flying humanoid plants entirely and like the base mechanic wasn't dungeon crawling, but it was Ikea furniture assembly <laughs> because they don't have built-in audiences in the way that dungeon crawlers do. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess this is overlapping with identity a little bit, but I think that genre is worth noting as, as a subcategory of property. Yeah. And then identity. Do, do you think Gloomhaven had... And it doesn't have to have all four. One is enough normally, but Gloomhaven was a mega hit. So the thing with Gloomhaven is partially due to its success already but it was like oh you like descent well this is the new descent especially after the first kickstarter like the time it exploded was i'm a great example i love descent i had descent first and second edition i heard gloomhaven was amazing i saw a bunch of the reviews and i was like you know what i'm just not interested i've got a campaign game that fills this slot in my life because there were so many people who were like 
I think even Tom Vassell was like, this replaces the Sen for oh, me. And that was one of his like top 10 games. Did anyone and, send you Gloomhaven? No. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. No. But like, if I had more friends who, at that time who... who oh, who my, oh, AJ. Oh, who, I'm sorry. Who was in that like sphere, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Then I t- could totally imagine that have been sent to me. So I think like the identity of someone who's looking for a big meaty campaign game. Well, I, I was going to say dungeon crawling, like stuff like that is almost a lifestyle game. Like yeah. Gloomhaven is a lifestyle game, but those games are often. So like I can imagine if you're into that lifestyle, you're probably going to see it, but I can imagine people who are into D and D being told about Gloomhaven. I can mm-hmm. see like role players or dungeon crawlers generally, but I think, I think that's the weakest of the four hooks for sure, but it nailed the other three. Yeah. Right, so let's talk about Spirit. Now, Gloomhaven is a really interesting example of this because it is very thematic. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of content in terms of lore and writing and characters and world building. We talked a lot about the, the cost of rules, and sometimes it's worth it to have the extra rules craft, and sometimes not. With Gloomhaven, I think I've given this exact example before, but it's worth repeating. There's a fly ability that lets you skip over spaces with enemy units in it, and there's a jump ability that lets you do the exact same thing. The reason why there's two different ones is for the theme. And this is one of those cases where it's already a big, hefty, very long experience. People already are bought into this thing. It's worth having that little bit of extra rules craft because that builds into the spirit of the game. Because if it always said fly, then you'd be like, well, there is a tiny bit of disconnect there. But because they put in that extra effort to make sure everything is tuned perfectly. It sticks with you. Absolutely. And even the little touches, you know, the zombie moves slowly, but there's one move where it moves fast and falls apart and loses life as it does it. <laughs> it's it's dripping with spirit from every direction. And spirit in this case being the stuff that stays with you after the game. And you're saying like all those little rules, mm-hmm. fiddly though they might be to implement, yeah, they're I, the moments you remember. Yeah, I was leaning into alignment with that. But what I mean is right, like, right. they lead into each other, right? Yeah. Because they're so aligned, it's like this thematic moment happened to me. So energy for Gloomhaven. So I think the energy of Gloomhaven manages to not be plotting, which a lot of dungeon crawlers are, in part because you've got a built-in timer in your hands, but also because there's a lot of big exciting moments where you burn cards in your hands to do super power moves, and particularly because the further the game gets to the end, the more likely you are to burn the cards for the big powerful moves. So I actually think it moves at a good clip. It has a good fast-paced energy despite being a big long game and i think that it does deliver on the energy that you would want out of a game like that yeah earnestness i don't know what do so you think? let's go into the four uh truth or authenticity mm-hmm. i would say it is definitely authentic it is definitely like a love letter to the genre right that that's the kind of thing and so again we're in spirit which is what stays with you after you play yeah and i think people who love dungeon crawlers or even just like this makes them love dungeon crawlers like yeah. They feel it. <laughs> yes. The moral or theme? This is one of my ones that has a question mark. I haven't gone far enough in the campaign. I'm only 30 hours in. <laughs> uh, so it's hard for me to comment on that. Because if you don't know, there's like 100 scenarios, I think. Yeah. And I've done one. Thir- 30. <laughs> you did 20. the first one. <laughs> I've done a bunch, but I don't feel like I've gone deep enough into the story. You've made a dent, but you're not most of the way through. Emotion. The emotions that I get from it are like the feeling clever aspect. I was playing as the Tinker, who's all about like traps and stuff like that. The moment where you like trick three enemies into walking into oh, traps. Oh yeah, to that's what emotion is in terms of board games. Mm-hmm. It's how, it, yeah, obviously it's always how it makes you feel, but mm-hmm. like... That moment of feeling clever, that moment of feeling rich, uh, of feeling ripped off, like you can go high mm. and low with them. Yeah. yeah, that's what emotion is. And that is what sticks with you after a game. Mm. And then relatability. 
Yeah, they're all fantasy races. <laughs> so, Just like you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's much relatability there. I do think that they do a good job characterizing the different characters to have distinct, not personalities, but to have distinct styles that you can sort of latch onto. Oh, so if we'll talk about this more in Root, but if you're a certain type of player, yes. then that character is for you. And that's huge relatability. Like, yeah. this is why shows like, so to go back to sitcom, Sex and the City work because I'm a Samantha, you're yeah. a... And so this has that. You're a tinker, here you go, you are playing the tinker. I'm the person with the gear. I'm playing like the smart, clever character who has to do weird things. I'm playing as the giant wall of bricks. Yeah. I punch things real hard. That's interesting, yeah. So a voice, I think. Voice is an example where Gloomhaven could have skipped it and not been the hit it was, but he worked on that world. I haven't played it. So what do you think of the voice? Of you the... haven't played Gloomhaven? When would I have had a chance to play Gloomhaven? Boy, we gotta figure out While I had a one-year-old or while I was living by myself in a pandemic? Peter, we're going to be staying up real late. <laughs> not playing Gloomhaven tonight, jeez. <laughs> I think that the world of Gloomhaven, it's definitely fantasy-centric, but I do think it has a unique style. I don't think it's super unique. Oh, yeah. um, it, it's not what you, what you take away with you. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like that could be different if maybe by the time I'm done, I'll feel different. Or maybe with Frosthaven, the world gets flushed out a little bit more. There's enough little details to it, but... But that's not the selling point. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Whereas Gloomhaven with the IP of Harry Potter would right. probably have... <laughs> One more thing with premise. Part of Gloomhaven's premise or hook is the sheer audacity of it. Like, yeah. it's just the biggest game. <laughs> the scope of the game is probably unmatched. Yeah. I think Kingdom Death Monster rivals it. I don't think it overtakes it. So in terms of hook, it had a lot going for it. In terms of craft, it has a lot going for it. And in terms of spirit, which I wasn't sure about, as we talked through, it was like, oh no, it actually really hits a lot of that stuff. Mm. And this is why it's a mega hit. This is kind of the central thesis, which is why I'm emphasizing this, of my hook craft spirit thing, is that like, if you can hit all three, mm -hmm. that's how you explode. Right. You know, you need as many as you can do to do as well as you can. But if you want to do all three, Back to the Future is my normal example for movies. Like it just nails all three and we're remembering it 40 years later. Right. Okay, so let's talk about code names. So the premise of code names is absolutely what got me into it. Like the mechanics of that. Hmm. I'll start with property. I'm a huge, he's my favorite designer, Vlada Shavatl. So I was right. like, new Vlada Shavatl game, I'm in. And then I heard the premise and this was before you could get it anywhere. Like there are only a few copies in the world. And I was like, I have to play this. <laughs> and it was not out in Australia where I was living. And I went to New York and managed to play it. That premise really hooked me in. Hmm. And the property is Vlada. The platform is CGE. And they just went retail. So A, it's $20. And right. pla platform also includes accessibility, by the way. $20. Cheaper than that, my friend. How much is it? In oh, $20 Australian. I was living in Australia when it came out. <laughs> so in Canada at Board Game Bliss, which I don't work for, so... Not the sponsor. Uh, not the sponsor. We sold it for 16 bucks Canadian. Really? It was dirt cheap. Yeah. We didn't touch on this at all, and this is why I wanted to go through some games. But yeah, price affects platform. Totally. Netflix has a price barrier. YouTube does not. Netflix doesn't release its numbers, but I'm doubting there's many Netflix shows getting the 40 million views that a YouTube video can get because anyone can watch it anywhere in the world. With Netflix, you have to have a subscription, et cetera, et cetera. So the lower your price, the, the longer your road, to use <laughs> hook as the road metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then CGE have contacts around the world so they're able to put it everywhere at once. If Jellybean had come up with that, we would have had to put it on Kickstarter. It's not a great Kickstarter game, frankly. And then been like, hey, retail stores who like us, whereas they were able to be like, hey, every retail store in the world... Do you want a copy? And every retail store in the world was like, of course, CGE, we love your stuff. Mm -hmm. So they had platform going for them right out of the gate. And then identity 
Not so much. Like, all I can think of is word gamers were told about it. It did a good job of crossing over into the mainstream. Yeah, I think it manages to be the type of game that non-gamers can play casually at parties. Because you can just leave it set up, people can wander in and out of the yeah. game. That's very huge. But as well as that, I guess with, with identity, I should reframe it as, like, it's not just targeting identity. It's also allowing any identity. So, like, Gloomhaven has a relatively narrow identity. So, you either want to go narrow and deep right. or broad. right. I'm, I'm revisiting my own theory as we talk. <laughs> so yeah, Gloomhaven is not for many people, but those people are going to love it and be told about it by everyone and play it forever. Codenames is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously not literally every person in the world enjoys Codenames, but there's no demographic where you're like, well, I've played it with a six-year-old, I've played it with a 70-year-old. Yeah, It's as for everyone as I've ever seen a game get. Because mm-hmm. gamers love it, non-gamers love it. Oh man, obviously not everyone loves it, but yeah. you know what I mean. I don't love it. Right, but you you understand the <laughs> <Yes>, like yes <laughs> craft. You can disagree on this, but it's pretty well regarded. I'm not. Like, I think. Oh, oh, I thought you were saying you didn't like it. I I don't. It's a very good game. It's not for me. Right, right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. so craft. I, I meant you as in the audience, the people who will be like, right. well, it doesn't, and like, sure, cool, but it's a well crafted game. <laughs> I think one thing that you can point to for well crafted is can you do more with the system? Gloomhaven, Frosthaven, Codenames, Codenames Duet. I actually think Codenames Duet is even better than Codenames. Like, I don't think it's an example of craft. Cra- craft yeah. uh, in this system is is having a good time as you're playing it. Oh, right, right, right. It's the audience. The audience yeah, audience, yeah, right? yeah. It's it's not it's it's audience focused. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I work. Okay, spirit is interesting with code names because hmm. I don't know how it does here. I think it's about you remember the time you had with people. So it's like the moment that you hit the yeah, spy, you hit seven of them, or like with a single clue, and you feel yeah. so <laughs> smart. And then energy, it's very flexible, but that's not why you remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say like it's not earnest. <laughs> see, it's interesting because most quote-unquote party games have high energy yeah people, this people... one's very thinky yes in fact many people say it's not a party game. it's very contentious to say it's a party game because, oh interesting because people expect it to be light and throw a burrito <laughs> yeah exactly and when they play this they're like i'm sitting down and we're being often quiet and, and like, someone's thinking. staring at a board for five minutes until someone flips a timer because they're so yeah. sick of it <laughs> exactly i think this is probably one of the best cases we could have come up with for for energy because it doesn't match what people think of as a party game. Yeah. And even though it's got its own energy that works just fine for it. Yeah, so there's no voice. The earnestness of, like, you have an emotion <laughs> yeah. sort of misses on spirit. And this actually, again, touches on something I wanted to talk about, which is I think this this whole, like, hook craft spirit and spirit, I don't want to say mattering less, but as evidenced by Codename, you can have a mega hit, which Codename undeniably is with very low spirit is part of what attracted me and I suspect a lot of people to board games as designers because I'm not good at spirit Hmm. and that sounds weird because I was talking about the examples where I've done well but like everything else I've written has been pretty dry Hmm. and like not emotionless but I said with Nitro it just doesn't stick with people that's fine I'm not sitting here you know whining about my past failures I get this feeling with board games that you don't need to pour your soul into it in the way that you do for a script or a painting or a poem or mm. a, or anything else. And again, if you want to succeed and you can, you got to nail that spirit, you got to. But I was attracted to the, and I'm, I'm not saying this is still the case. I was attracted because it doesn't seem like you do. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's interesting. Because I would say like I've written, you know, a lot of stuff just for myself, just like short stories or poems or whatever. And for me, I can't, manufacture spirit on command you can look at my writing and you can read one read another and you can tell oh this is one he had to write he had to get off his chest yes yes right? that's what spirit is for most things mm. 
but it isn't necessarily like that for board games. Mm. Yogi and, and Bez, please feel free to disagree. I don't think Bez woke up being like, oh, my life's work, I will create Yogi. I think they were just like, oh, this is a fun idea and made it. It was a very fun idea, but without that, like, uh, code names. Vlada was just like, oh, here's an idea, and then spent two years making sure that it was the best version of that idea. But he wasn't like, ah, yes, I have fought for the right to make this game, or like, hmm. after my wife left me, I made this game to get over it and connect with everyone. Um, I think there are hits that are the opposite. I think Gloomhaven is an example that it sprung from him because he needed to create it. And I know that there are designers who are like, Jeff Fraser is a designer like that a lot of time where he's like, I need to make this game. Hmm. But it doesn't, again, I, I don't, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying from the outside, it didn't seem like a necessary component. And see, that's what's interesting to me is you, you commented on a couple of games and you said like, these ones, I can see the spirit in them and some of them I can't. I don't know how I would assess that. Like, I, I have no idea how I'd look at a game and say, I can tell if they do or not. Is that kind of the point that you're trying to make? It's not. It's interesting because, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can see that difference. I don't know why I can see it. Maybe it helps that, like, with me, I sometimes get obsessed with the idea. That time you killed me. I was meant to be doing something else, but this idea got into my head and wormed and wormed and wormed, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that, for me, and obviously there's no magic formula or else we'd all be making the best work of our lives. <laughs> of but, course. like, to get spirit, you sort of need that passion and drive <laughs> And I don't know, I feel like I can see it in Gloomhaven. I think because of the audacity of it. Right. I feel like you don't make that unless you're like, I have to make this. Yeah. And that's why the two examples of were very small games, Yogi and Codenames. They didn't need to spend 10 years on that. <laughs> Whereas Gloomhaven, you need to pour a lot of time, in, of, a lot of your life into to make it. And as you say, either way, it's not necessary, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah... I, I, I do think I see what you're saying where it's like, I can imagine a lot of games that didn't have that spark, but it would be really hard for me to imagine a movie that someone didn't pour their life into that turned out right. great. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Cool. Yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying I'm right. Yeah. Well, I think that to really be, as we were saying, to be a big hit in board games, you need that spirit and you need to work out how you're going to get it in there because otherwise people are just going to be like, oh, it's another game. That's interesting because the party game that I referenced earlier, that one... I have no passion for. I don't like party games, generally speaking. But that, I'm very, very proud of the work I did on. I'm completely biased, obviously, but I've made tons of games that I can say are bad. And that one, I'm really proud of. And I, I had no passion for it. See, you've said things in the past that contradict that. Did and I? I'm, not, I'm not trying to argue with you about your own feelings. But you've said, like, I made this game for this reason. I made this right. game for this reason. I wanted this game to exist for this reason. Right. That's a drive to make a game. Yeah, I guess. It's not just sitting down and being like, doop, 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 this is fun, make the game, put it out. I guess what I'm looking at is I wasn't passionate about it. I wasn't like, oh, I need to make this game, this needs to exist. Like, if I had done a playtest and it went horribly, I'd probably just have scrapped it. But I was like, oh yeah, it's working, it's getting closer. And oh, whatever. okay, gotcha. I, I thought know. I'd been in some pretty horrible playtests of that game. Of that one? <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe yeah. not. But I I know, when, when I saw you working on it, I thought that was a passion project for you. No. <laughs> uh I think because he just kept on bringing it out and kept on pitching it and kept on like, it was that, that sick with attitude, you know? Right. But for me, I just believed in that one. And again, that that's the, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But like, I, I believed it was going to be good. But I, again, it's, for me, it's like the passion. Like I didn't, I didn't. I what's what's like, the between believing in something and being passionate about it? I believed it could be a good game that people would enjoy. I did not care if I made that game. Like, oh, gotcha. You know I, mean? I interpreted, I believed in it as oh, like, I, I knew in my heart that this was going to be a good game. Right. No. You were just like, no, I think it's good. Yeah. Hey, I gotcha. 
Okay, last one we're going to talk about, and then we'll wrap up, is Root. Yep. Hook is the premise. The premise is asymmetric factions, but also playable. (laughs) (laughs) I think it had many premises. The asymmetry thing is a good premise, Mm -hmm. and as you said, but it works. Let's do platforms. So I think Root could not have succeeded if it hadn't been the follow-up to the $1.8 million Vast campaign. Yes. I don't know the exact numbers. That's, That's my guess. So he had a platform directly speaking to people who liked asymmetrical games with Kyle Ferrin's art. Right, which is sliding straight into property. Yes, yes. But I'm saying he could have made an asymmetrical game with Kyle Ferrin's art Mm -hmm. and had no way to reach them. Right, and I'm saying that he got the reach not just from the platform, but because of the property. Like you, in your example of on that platform, you referenced Kyle Ferrin's art and later games, which are the property. No, sorry, I'm I'm talking about the Kickstarter update that they posted to Vast saying new game oh i see that's the platform got gotcha and and you're right it ties into the property but that was a platform directly to people who are going to be interested in the property which was remember that vast thing that you loved here's another thing that you're going to love because it's very similar yeah but i specifically want to note that the more playable thing i'm not just being facetious here a lot of people loved vast and could not get to the table because it's very difficult and a lot of people wanted to love vast and just couldn't get to the table and I actually like Vast. I really enjoy it. So we were talking about like the rough edges and like when it's worth it. It goes too far in that direction in many people's opinion, including ours. But I remember when the sales pitch for Root was, you know, Vast, it's less asymmetric. My initial reaction is I liked the asymmetry, but I... The, the, the trade-off. Right. The trade-off was so worth it, though, because the game is way more playable and it's still very asymmetric. It's yeah. not quite as asymmetric as I play as the board and I play as yeah. a knight on the board and I play as whatever. Um, it's still people playing fundamentally like some common rules unlike vast mm-hmm. but then from there there's enormous asymmetry yeah very impressive design i'm going to talk about identity in terms of this new way we're talking about it where like i think where vast was hey it's in a dungeon you're playing people who are in a dungeon root opened that identity substantially and we've talked yeah. about this in, in irl previously where like people played root who quote unquote shouldn't have played root and wouldn't have played Root because it was cute little woodland animals running around mm-hmm. and had a great time. Oh, that, that ties back to property, which I meant to mention, like that red wall feel. It's not red wall themed, but it's close enough that people who like that property were like, yes. Mm-hmm. Or not even that property, but like that idea, that genre, that very specific genre. Craft, Colwell's a genius, skip. <laughs> uh, spirit. And this is where I think Root really excels, like more than Gloomhaven and more than Codenames. Spirit is what sticks with you after you've seen it. Like Mm -hmm. you can see a good movie and walk out and never think about it again. Or you can see a good movie and walk out and be like, that movie has changed my... Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso has changed my life. Yes. Genuinely. It's a beautiful show. Go watch it. Don't look up the premise first. And I'm not saying that Root changes people's lives, but Root gets in your head. Mm-hmm. And Codenames does to a certain extent because it's a puzzle, and Gloomhaven does because it's a puzzle. Gloomhaven actually really gets people's head, and maybe I need to expand my spirit stuff for however <laughs> Gloomhaven does that because mm. the people whose house we're at, uh, Frankie and Jenna, they got obsessed with Gloomhaven over the pandemic and just never put it away. <laughs> they just kept on coming back to it and back to it and back to it. And so there's something about Gloomhaven that does hook into your head. And I think Codenames has this to a lesser degree where like I would walk out of a game being like, oh, if I'd given that clue and want to play again. Like in Australia, we say Moorish, not M-O-O-R-I-S-H, but M-O-R-E-I-S-H. Like a, a Pringle is Moorish. You want more, you want more, you want more. Mm. Codenames is Moorish. Gloomhaven is Moorish. Root is Moorish, but also just gets in your head as like this 
it's not even that I want to play more. It's just that I want to think about it more. <laughs> you know what I mean? So why do you want to think about it? I mean, I know, but the audience doesn't. So we played two games yesterday. I played as the Marquis de whatever. They were not very interesting to me. And I played as the birds. The birds are so awesome. And the birds, they're this weird puzzle that's unlike any other game. And it would be hard enough if that was the whole game. But you're trying to do this puzzle while playing against all these people who are actively trying to stop you if they're paying attention from being able to complete your puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a one versus many. <laughs> That's kind of what Root is. It's yeah. a one versus many for every player. Yeah. That's such a, That's a yeah. great way to put it. And so I love me a Euro. I love me a puzzle game. And I just want to play the birds again. And well, it's not even that I want to play it again. I just, I'm like, oh man, remember when I... Like it made me do this and I'm thinking about this and then I had the aha moment and that's huge for me. And Root is basically engineered to produce as many aha moments, which if you don't know the term, it's it's that when you're playing a game and it's all too confusing and you're like, I don't know how to do anything, it's annoying, then everything clicks together and you're like, aha, I know how to win this and I did. <laughs> And like that moment is just euphoria and it is, you, you'd know the chemicals better than I would. <laughs> oh yeah, we should have done that in follow up. <laughs> yeah. And so that moment, it's like chasing the dragon. And that's why the expansions for Root will and should keep on coming because eventually you'll learn all the things and how they interact. And so they throw two more in. You not only get two more, but you get two more in combination with every other one. Mm -hmm. So you're getting these dopamine hits, which are addictive. And so you want to go back and do it more. And then as we were saying earlier, it's janky. It's, it's unique. It's not like anything else. And as a game designer, I'm just going to puzzle on it and be like, how do you do it? Yeah. Like, how did that team put this incredible work of art? Neither of us had played Root before yesterday, by the way, which is why it's on our mind. Mm. But hearing us talk about it might explain to you, like, the sheer spirit of that game <laughs> and why it's been the mega hit that it is. And a lot of the gamers are like, no, I played it, didn't have a good time. And that's fine. Like, you're not, you don't need to have a good time. As a game designer, you should be understanding why other people did have a good time. Mm. Not necessarily to recreate it, just because that's how you improve your craft, by understanding what makes games work, even if you personally hate it. Mm -hmm. AJ and I had a conversation last week. We were talking about it's not about the one thing a game did badly. Mm -hmm. It's about everything the game did well. Mm -hmm. And focusing on everything the game did well will make you a way better designer than being like, ah... I won't make that mistake. Like at the end of that, you can have a toolbox of mistakes you'll never make. That's not a hit game. <laughs> yeah, we were talking as well about a few acres of snow. It's like you can say, oh, well, there's one broken strategy if you read online and figure out exactly the thing to do. It's like, or you could just focus on all the great design decisions that game makes, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you make a game that successfully makes no mistakes, it will not do as well as a game that's, that successfully does all the thing that makes people want to play your game. Mm -hmm. Even if it's full of mistakes. <laughs> right. We were talking about someone who passed on Airland and Sea, which is, yeah. as I always talk about, one of my favorite games. I showed it to a guy and he was like, oh, but I could just pass every round. And so he played his test game and he was like, pass, 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 nearly had a good hand. And then he played it at hand and got like more points than he lost from passing. Mm -hmm. And so from that, he was like, game's busted we won't sign it. <laughs> and I think that was a mistake. I think that he should have signed that game. You don't say. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's done really well because it's a masterpiece design, which is why I showed it to him in the first place. Mm -hmm. And le less so as a publisher. Publishers have a whole different world. Let's talk about designers. As a designer, if you play Everdell and you're like, didn't use the tree. Cool. What, <laughs> what have you learned as a designer about what made that game a hit and how you can make your game a hit? Mm -hmm. It's 3 a.m. So it's 3.30 a.m. So pardon if I'm in... Uh, 
Yeah. Well, imagine how many designers we have talked to personally who said it's a bad game that doesn't do anything well. It and doesn't deserve its success right. because of its mistakes. And think of what lessons they weren't able to learn by having right. that perspective, right? Yeah. We were just talking about a game that we might be working on for Jelly Bean later on. That game has some direct inspirations from Everdell. It was like, okay, let's take some lessons from this. Why was this a mega hit? And for us, it was very clear why it was a mega hit. Uh, So get get it back to Spirit for Root. Uh, Energy, weird, janky energy no one's ever done will stick with me forever. Mm -hmm. Earnestness. And this one's interesting because I think this hits truth or authenticity in that Cole is a huge fan of coin games and like, war games and he's captured that love and brought it to a new audience and again this is an intangible thing and you can't chart this on it on a graph but i think it you feel it mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's brought a love of a thing to a new audience very successfully moral root is actually full of like morals and themes and lessons i don't know if that's the main thing that people take away from it but i think it probably there's someone who they have well, i think i can point to a very specific example of this yeah please it, there's a woodland alliance they do not start on the board. They don't exist because they're just like the general population right. and they're not involved in the war. And what they'll do is they'll place sympathy tokens where basically if you move into that space or if you attack that space, you have to give that player a card and that gives them more strength that they can Right, use. yes. And so like how incredibly thematic is that? And what a poignant <laughs> point. Like you're having these conflicts in a place with innocent people yeah. that causes damage and that causes them to rise up and they can only generate troops if you provoke them, like, brilliant. I might, I might even call moral moral slash metaphor because I'm going to be thinking yeah. about the metaphors of Root for a while because I was like, I think this is like, this one's feudalism and this one's capitalism and this one's oh, communism. And, and someone else was like, nah. And I was like, yeah, but I think... And so, like, <laughs> it's another puzzle I want to solve that's there because, you know, they, they put the effort in. That team is my example of a board game publisher knocking it out of the park morally because <laughs> i know how a lot of their business works and oh, yeah. in terms of the stuff they're producing and artistically and in terms of like oath is pushing oath is not my kind of game and i don't know if i'll ever play it but it is pushing the boundaries of games in a way that i cannot help but like fall to my knees in admiration i won't play it not because i don't think it's good i just have limited time to play games and etc i mean i didn't really like oath but <laughs> right yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard enough people say that but maybe i should play it just see what it does right yeah yeah definitely relatability which faction do you love aj i love the otters why do you love the otters aj i love the otters because my core aesthetic that draws me to games is the fellowship of being with other people and so it gives me the ability to be friends with everyone all i'm doing is i'm selling people services i'm letting them use the waterways i'm letting them use my units i'm selling them cards out of my hand in the game everyone has a hand of cards i have a hand of cards i can use that hand but my hand is always on public display and people can always buy them. And I just set my prices every round. And so the game is all about wheeling and dealing and making everything smoother for everybody else. As a people pleaser, that's all you want to do in life. Exactly. <laughs> it's scratched and it's for me that very few other games do. So I'd be happy to just play the otters all day, every day. Yeah. And so I keep trying to skip over relatability, but no, it really matters. If you are targeting multiple players within a game working out what the in is for those players. I mean, this is more for Hook, but yeah, like it'll stick with you because it was you. It felt like you. You related to those characters, mm-hmm. which is weird to talk about a board game, but you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then voice, enough said, like cool, weird, no one's done it, really well executed. And uh, definitely his style. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is, yeah, I think we mentioned him earlier. Is like, that is a style, and both of the publisher yeah. and of the designer, and they came together beautifully. Absolutely. So it is 3.30 a.m. <laughs> uh, you did say you had no limits, so I, I, I pushed you. So now we're going to play Gloomhaven on mic. 
This is definitely going to be the end of the second of a two-parter. <laughs> so we're going to have a sneak peek in the next episode. We're going to talk about structure versus content. Excellent. We're going to do a full episode on it. I'm excited. And now it's time for the only part of the show where we're allowed to have fun. The fun problem. Welcome to Fun Problems. I'm Peter C. Hayward. <laughs> I'm AJ Brandon. <laughs> AJ, do you have a fun question for us? So I'm not going to ask one for myself today because you missed some episodes. Oh, I have. So yes. I'm going to ask you the ones that you missed. Cool. And we'll do this because this is a two-parter. We'll, give, we'll do two. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's perfect because I have exactly two. Amazing. <laughs> so Peter already answered the one that was on Jeff's episode because he has missed three. That was the one about fears. And we actually had the same fear, but I didn't let on. Oh, nice. heights. <laughs> John episode question was what was the most emotional you've ever gotten playing a game analog or digital? I told you the story earlier today, but I'm going to tell you again on mic. My gaming group back in Melbourne is the Train Dogs. So called because we really liked 18xx games, but we're like, this theme is so dry. Let's pretend we're all little dogs who like run train companies. <laughs> and so with the Train Dogs, I still talk to them all the time in our chat called Train Dogs. And in my last game of 1830, which is the one that we played all the time, eight hour heavy 1830 train game. Oh, I still get emotional about this. I messed up. <laughs> I thought there was only one type of tile that could go into New York. And so I didn't buy a tile and put it in New York thinking it doesn't matter who goes there. I'll always be able to do this move. I've been setting up to for the whole game. I'll let someone else do it because they're going to just put the same tile I would put down, which I thought was an all-way tile is the only option. And I'll be able to use that tile to complete my route and like pump out money for the next four hours of the game. So I didn't buy the New York tile. I did something else. On the next turn, my close friend Tom McLean bought the other New York tile, the one I didn't know existed, played it in a way that did not connect my route. And I swear I could have cried because like... For, from that moment onwards and they were all like no you can still come back i was like no like in that game it's completely deterministic no luck i knew at that point that i would come second by like this many dollars at best and so i was like can we, can we, can we pretend i put the right tile and they're like no obviously not i'm like but i, I didn't know and they're like you've played this game 20 times you should have learned the tiles and i was like okay and i like i'm still to this day so frustrated that one time five years ago i didn't put the right tile into new york and i came second by a certain number of dollars and it all played out exactly as i said and i had to sit there for four hours my last time playing this game with my friends stewing that mistake and i've not played an 18xx game since I could I, I couldn't do it. Oh my god. So I wonder how many listeners are like, man, that makes me really want to play an 18xx game. They are specific. <laughs> I don't recommend them to most people. If you want to play an 18xx game, you will play one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't help you there. So it's a two-parter. What is your favorite non-electronic possession? And what is your favorite electronic non-smart possession? As in not a computer, not a phone. Yeah, so my favorite non-electronic possession. I really wish I was at home so I could look around at my stuff. <laughs> I'm not a very sentimental person. I didn't say sentimental. I know, but I'm saying like any possession I have, I'm not that attached to because I'm like, if I could improve this, I would. Sure. So what's the most useful one you have? My answer is very utilitarian. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I can answer for sentiment actually, which is my travel penguin, Splinter, who I've had for 12 years now. And he has like a custom pocket for me to store stuff in. And I take him every time I travel because I can sleep on him. Mm. He's my favorite maybe utility actually i'm gonna say just just splinter splinter my travel penguin sure because it's not only utilitarian 
It's not only sentimental, it's also unique. No one else has a travel penguin. I arrived at my friend uh, Frankie and Jenna's house, where we are now, and Frankie was like, what's that? And I was like, it's winter. She's like, okay. Next question, what's that? And I'm like, it's my travel penguin. She's like, okay, what's a travel penguin? And I was like, Frankie, it's a travel penguin. Like, enough said. So yes, Splinter the travel penguin. Cool. My favorite electronic non-smart object. Can I hear what my answer was? Yeah, what was your answer? My answer was my blender. Oh, yeah. I have a Vitamix. It's very nice. I have a very portable blender, and I like how portable it is. Hmm. Since you're a very texture-driven person, I'd be really interested in making you a slushy or milkshake or something oh, yeah. with mine. Because the texture drives me mad when I use anything other than my blender. Oh, interesting. Uh, I've got my answer. Cool. I have, and this is such a nothing answer, but I love it. I just have a little USB thing that like splits into four USB mm. things. And I've got all my cords plugged into it. So when I travel, if I can just find a single power outlet, <laughs> every device I have will be... And like one of the spots is USB-C. So it does mm. my iPad and my MacBook. I just have like... I never have to worry about cords or, or charging. Nice. And I, it's such a load off my mind. I know if I have it, and guess where I keep it? In your penguin. In my travel penguin. <laughs> as long as I have it, I will never run out of battery Wasn't on anything. Splinter? Splinter, yeah. Splinter. That is my favorite non-smart electronic purchase. If, if I include smart, my smartwatch. I love it beyond all else. I love it. Notice how he snuck in a third answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying. If it was board game, I would say... <laughs> Go ahead. Why not? What, 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 what board game would you pick? Uh, Istanbul. I love Istanbul. Mm -hmm. It's probably not the one I play the most. Mm. I probably play Letter Jam the most. Mm. Could easily be my favorite game. It's so good. My most played game is... By hours, it has to be Descent. By plays, by plays, yeah, it might be. I'm thinking like how many times does it come out and get to the table. Uh, it still might be descent because I played it a ton when I was younger. But if not, then definitely if we discount descent, then it's definitely cross card. Uh, cross what? It, it translates to dealt in English. Oh, oh, it's, it's another language. I was like, I don't know what yeah, you're saying. It's, it's phenomenal. So thank you all very much for listening to this two part episode, which was meant to be two part all along. That's how we planned it. We always plan on two partners. We didn't just stay up till four a.m. talking about my weird model about creativity what do you uh, think of it by the way i think some of the exact terms that you yeah use that, that's what improved. i'm working on right now that's why i'm like it's a little raw but right. like hook craft spirit that i'm really solid on and now it's just like how well can i taxonomy it yeah i really like the pre-game mid-game post-game dichotomy i think breaking it down into that is the way that i view that lens as being useful because like craft is so huge yeah. right but I think viewing it in those lenses really helps you to really zoom in on those and say, like, what does that do? And is my game achieving yeah. that? The reason I say I'm focused on craft, I don't want to say good at craft, but I'm focused on craft is because I write a lot of comedy. And if people are laughing, then I'm excelling at craft. Right. But that doesn't translate to spirit. It doesn't translate to the, like, they can laugh a lot and then walk away having learned nothing. And every sitcom writing book emphasizes this. They're all like, People can have a good time with your show, but you've got to tell them a story that matters and that sticks with them. Mm -hmm. And I've always read that and I've thought I was doing it. But after Night Crew came out, which again, I really do like, I don't think mm -hmm. it's a bad show. But after Night Crew, I was like, oh, that's what it means. Because in today's marketplace, there's so many games. You can't just make a good game. You need to make a game that people are recommending to their friends. Yeah. And that's why spirit matters so much. Mm -hmm. The other way I have of, of Hookcraft and Spirit expressing it is get them in the door, give them a good time, what sticks with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for listening to our bumper two-parter of Hookcraft and Spirit with 4am ramblings and long rants about Root. <laughs> 
I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And we will talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.